If you could take a Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 2, that's page 170. Uh, If you need a Bible, there's one underneath your seat or in the rack in front of you. And if you take one of these and turn to page 170, you'll be in Joshua chapter 2. And in just a minute, Mark and Allison are going to help me read this passage uh, to us. But let me set the context as to where we are in the story of Joshua. In the story of Joshua, the children of Israel are getting ready to cross the Jordan River and enter into the Promised Land. I have a map for you. Uh, The Promised Land is between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean uh, Sea. And right now Israel is stationed on the east side of the Jordan River. And God has commissioned Joshua to lead the people across the Jordan into the promised land. And the very first city that they're going to go to is the city of Jericho. As a result of them getting ready to enter into the land, Joshua sends two spies throughout the land, but tells them especially focus their attention on Jericho. And we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, go look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go, after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives. If you don't tell that we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and your mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into their street, 
Their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for this story from so many years ago. But God, we're asking now through your Holy Spirit that this would not be a history lesson. God, we're asking that through your Holy Spirit this would be the very Word of God spoken to us today. God, I pray that by the power of your Spirit you would make clear to us uh, what you are saying to us. God, for those for whom this will be easy to listen to or for those for whom it will be difficult to listen to, I pray no matter what our situation, that through the power of your Spirit you would communicate clearly uh, through our minds and ears to our hearts. God, I pray for those who have never accepted Jesus as their Savior, I pray that this story would so convince them of your love and your grace and your power uh, that they would come to know you and that you are a rescuing and a saving God. For those who are already by faith Christians, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged to be reminded that you are a God of grace, that you love to save and to rescue. God, we praise you for what you've done in Mark's life. Lord, you are a rescuing God. Come and show yourself to us today so that we might know you and love you and serve you. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This week I was reading in The Economist, And it came across a story of a young woman named Katie. Katie's in her 20s. She's of Puerto Rican descent. When she was 14 years old, she dropped out of school, became pregnant, and had an abortion. As part of that journey, she also found herself addicted to heroin and then to crack cocaine. In order to feed her drug habit, Katie became a prostitute. She went to work for a couple of men who sequestered her in a hotel room, took all of her earnings, which amounted to about $1,700 per day, and paid her with drugs instead. Along the way, Katie did give birth to three children. Two of those children were taken away from her by the state, who thought she was unfit to raise them in those circumstances. The third is currently living with uh, its father. Katie uh, today is in the Cook County Prison where she is serving a term for prostitution. Now I tell you Katie's story because when we hear a story like that, it's a reminder of the devastation that sexual immorality brings physically, emotionally, mentally. And today we're going to look at the story of another prostitute, a woman named Rahab. But the problem is, is that sometimes when we hear a Bible story or a story about a prostitute in the Bible, it sort of feels like the term is whitewashed or that it's abstract. Katie is a real person just like Rahab was a real person. And it's easy to forget just how painful and how devastating and how difficult the life of someone who's in prostitution or in that world can be. Now, I don't know the details or the particulars of Rahab's life. 
I don't know if she had a substance abuse problem. I don't know if she was addicted to alcohol. I don't know if she had or aborted any children. What I do know is that she was the least reputable kind of prostitute that we know of in the Bible, meaning that she was a prostitute simply for the sake of money, not part of religious ceremonies that went with pagan religions. We also know that Rahab had a family, a mother and a father and brothers and sisters, but they don't live with her and she doesn't live with them, which shows she's an outcast from her own family. I also know that lying comes very naturally to Rahab and that she's been involved in a number of shady circumstances. It's clear to me this is not the first time she's had to hide men from people who are looking for them, nor the first time that she's lowered men out the window with that rope. All of which says Rahab's life is most likely filled with darkness and difficulty. And what we don't want to miss when we hear this story is we don't want to simply think, oh, everything in her life is great and wonderful. She's living a very dark and hard existence. And it's not hard for me to imagine. The reason I tell you Katie's story is we might be familiar with some of those details in modern day life. But I highly doubt that Rahab and Katie were all that different. I think they had very similar experiences in life. But the great thing for the Katies or the Rahabs or the whomever of the world is that today I get to share a story of God's amazing grace and God's incredible power to rescue people out of sexual immorality, out of lying, out of being outcasts in their family, out of disobedience, out of whatever it may be. And that story I get to share with you is in Joshua chapter 2. You're already there because you've heard the story read. I now want to try to think through this story together and to do so, we're going to use two characters in the story to kind of understand what's going on. Now there's a third character or characters, which are the spies. We're going to cover those next week. So we're going to look at Joshua 2 from the perspective of the spies next week. But this morning we want to think about this story in terms of two characters. Rahab and the king of Jericho. Rahab and the king of Jericho. Now, these two characters have two things in common. The first is that they're both in danger of death because of their sin. Now, with Rahab, that can be easy to see. We've just described what her life is like. It's not hard to imagine that she's experiencing the darkness that goes with that life. And it's not hard to imagine that God is not pleased with the life that she's living. But that's not only true of Rahab, it's also true of the king of Jericho. See, one of the problems with the stories in Joshua is it can look like, if you just pick up the Bible and read Joshua, it can look like God picked the nation of Israel sent them to this land of Canaan, told them to kill people and take their land from them. And for some of us, we hear that story and we think, 
Well, okay, he's God, he can do what he wants. Others of us hear that story and think, hmm, something doesn't seem quite right about that. That seems unethical, or that seems wrong. And we have the mindset when we pick up the story that everybody living in Canaan is innocent until they're proven guilty to us. And because we're not necessarily told of their guilt in Joshua, it can be easy to assume that the people living in Canaan are good, holy, kind, nice people. But the Bible tells us in other places that the people living in Canaan were not those things. That they were engaged in wickedness and disobedience. In fact, as far back as Abraham, 400 some years before the book of Joshua, God says to Abraham in Joshua chapter 15, God says to Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. He's talking about Egypt. God's saying to Abraham, your descendants are going to go into Egypt and for 400 years they're going to live in slavery there being mistreated. Then in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, back to Canaan, back to the promised land. Why all of this? For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites are the people living in Canaan. They're the ones living in Jericho. Some of them live on the east side of the Jordan River. Some of them live on the west side of the Jordan River. And at the time of Abraham, God is looking at the behavior of people who are living in Jericho and in Canaan, and he sees wickedness and rebellion. But God says their wickedness is not of such a blatant kind that they deserve the kind of punishment that I'm going to give them. And so God, in his foreknowledge, understands that that wickedness is going to continue to grow until it reaches a point where God simply can't stand it anymore. And he will send Joshua and the children of Israel as his avenging angels or the people he is bringing to bring punishment or discipline to the people living in the land of Canaan. This is ultimately God judging the wickedness of the people living in Canaan. Now the New Testament confirms that that's not only true for all of the promised land, it's true in particular of Jericho. In Hebrews 11, when we're told that Rahab, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed, we're also told she was not killed with those who were disobedient. Meaning the rest of the city, including Rahab, was disobedient. Meaning the king of Jericho was not an innocent bystander living a holy and righteous life. The king of Jericho represents all the people living in Jericho. And they were all living in rebellion against God. Now we don't know exactly what their sins were. We're not told. We know what Rahab's were. But for the king, he's participating in some level of wickedness and evil that has made God angry at the disobedience and the rebellion that's going on. And God tells us, all humans have disobeyed God. 
All humans have fallen short of God's plan for our life. All of us have sinned. And so it's no surprise that both the king and Rahab are in the situation of being sinners. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. The consequence for disobeying God is death. And so what both Rahab and the king have in common is they are both living in disobedience against God and both deserve death for what they're doing. There's a second thing that both Rahab and the king of Jericho have in common. And that is they both have heard a message about God, that God is a destroying and rescuing God. Look at verse number 9 in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites living on the east side of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. Rahab, the king, everybody in Jericho has heard what has happened, that God has taken the Israelites out of Egypt, a nation much more powerful than the nations in Canaan much more powerful than the Amorites, that God has taken the children of Israel around the east side of the Jordan and there defeated Sihon and Og, two very powerful kings of the Amorites. And the Amorites who are on the west side of the Jordan are looking at all that happened and they're well aware of the news. They've learned that God is a destroying God. The Egyptians have been destroyed. Sihon and Og have been destroyed. But they also learn and have heard that God is a rescuing God. The children of Israel have been rescued out of Egypt. They've been rescued from the Red Sea. They have been protected. They have been saved. Both the king and the prostitute have heard the same story. Well, that's what they have in common. Both sinners deserving death and both have heard the news that God is a destroying God and a rescuing God. What differentiates the two characters is one all-important fact. It's what they do with the news that they've heard. The king, who knows that God is coming, has decided he wants to keep the life that he has and try to fight against God and not let him come into his city. He's going to try to find these two spies and he's going to try to kill them. He wants to know what information they have. He wants to try to protect his city. Why? I don't know. I don't know if he thinks that all this stuff is just fables. I don't know if he thinks that he's stronger than the God of Israel. I don't know if he thinks that it's inevitable, that he has no choice but to fight. 
But for whatever the reason, the king has heard the news that God is a destroying and rescuing God, and the king has decided, I've got to fight to keep my life the way it is. Rahab makes a different choice. She doesn't want her life the way it is. The darkness, the difficulty, the despair, whatever it is, Rahab has come to understand something very important about God. Look in verse 11. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Here's the thing she learns. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And this is what Rahab is thinking. Wait a second. The God I just heard about the God who destroys and the God who rescues, He's not just the God of Israel. He's the God over everything. He's the God in heaven above and on earth below. He's God over all people, not just Israel. And you can see the wheels in Rahab's brain turning and she's thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. This rescuing and destroying God, if He's God over all people and all nations, then he's God over me. Which means I got a chance to be rescued. He's a rescuing God. If he's just a rescuing God for Israel, I'm in trouble. But Rahab, by God's grace, has come to realize, wait a second. This is a rescuing God who's God over all things. Maybe he'll rescue me. Maybe I don't have to be destroyed. Maybe I don't have to stay in this life. Maybe my fate is not sealed. Maybe there's a chance for me to be rescued. That's the one difference between the king and the prostitute. Both are sinners. Both are deserving death. Both have heard that God is a destroying God and a rescuing God. The king decides to fight against that truth, to resist that truth, to ignore that truth, to not believe that truth. The prostitute decides to accept it. Decides to say, maybe there's a chance I don't have to be destroyed. Maybe there's a chance that this God will rescue me because he's God over all people, including me. So now, the really, really important question for you and I, the question that moves this out of being interesting history, the question that moves this from being a story that happened a long time ago to being something that God is speaking to us today is, which of these two characters, the king or the prostitute, are we? Which of these two characters do we connect with? Which of these two characters are we acting like? You see, what was true of the king and Rahab is also true of us. We are all sinners. We have all disobeyed God. We have all fallen short of what God wants for us. And whether that's through coveting or lying or pride or selfishness or stealing or lust or prostitution or whatever it may be, every single one of us, the Bible says, has fallen short of what God wants for us. And the rightful wage that we've earned is death. That we deserve death 
for our sins, for our disobedience. It's also true if you've heard the story of Jesus, then you've heard the message that God is a destroying God and a rescuing God. You see, the story of Jesus is this, that Jesus, who in his very nature is God, we identify him as God's son, but as the son of God, he is of the same essence as God himself. This Jesus became a human so that he could take our disobedience and our sins on himself. And we believe and understand to be true that this Jesus was put to death, now hear me very carefully, was put to death by God on the cross for our sins, which means he is a destroying God. He cannot stand sin. That even his own son, who he loved completely and totally and perfectly, when our disobedience was placed on Jesus, God had no choice but to destroy him. And if you've heard that story about Jesus dying on a cross, then you too have heard the story that God is a destroying God. But if you've heard the rest of the story, which is that God raised that same Jesus from the dead because Jesus chose to place his faith in God, then you've also heard that God is a rescuing God. That God is one who does not abandon us to darkness and to destruction and to sin and to shame and to guilt. Instead, he rescues all who turn to him for help. And this God is God over the whole world. Not just God of Israel. Not just a Western God. He's God over the whole world. Now, I was thinking about this week, and I got something I want to share with you to kind of help, at least help make it come home to me that God is God over the whole world. We were at family camp a couple of weeks ago with some families from Calvary. It was a wonderful time. There was a mission speaker there, and the mission speaker showed a very interesting graphic of the world that I have here on the screen. Let me explain it to you. But I found this to be very helpful in thinking about God being God of the whole world. What you have, you can't read all of the fine print, but this is a study from the years 2005 to 2010, and it's of the growth rate of evangelical Christianity. And what you need to understand from the sort of graphic or the key is that certain countries in the world are colored red. What that red represents is the declining, if, if your country's population of evangelical Christians, not just Catholics or Orthodox, people who like Rahab have said, by decision, I want to align myself with God. I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and that I can have eternal life through faith in Him. If that population is decreasing... Your country is colored in red. Okay, now this comes from Reach Global, which is a mission agency uh, for uh, the Evangelical Free Church. They kind of put this together. I think it came out of Operation World. If the percentage growth rate of evangelicals is less than the growth rate of the country, meaning the population change of the country, your country is colored in yellow. All right? If, however, from 2005 to 2010, 
the population growth of evangelical Christians in your country was greater than the population growth of the country at large, your country is colored in blue. When you look at that map, that is an affirmation that God is God over the whole world. God is not God of Israel or God of America. I mean, America's in yellow. God is God over the whole world. He's not a Western God or a Middle Eastern God or an Asian God or an African God. God is God over the whole world. That's the truth that Rahab came to understand. Wait a second. This story about Jesus, this story about God being a destroying God and a rescuing God, that's not for a little tiny nation of Israel. That's not for Western Europe. That's not for Western, for North America. That's truth for the whole world. God is God over the whole world. And so the question is, we're in the exact same position that Rahab and the king of Jericho are in. We're all sinners, and we've all, as of now, heard the truth that God is a destroying God and a rescuing God who is God over all people, not one people group, all people. And the question is, what are you going to do with that? If you decide to disbelieve it, to resist it, to fight against it, to try to keep your life the way it is, to try to keep God out of your life, to try to keep the destruction that's coming from coming, then you are playing the role of the king. You are the king of Jericho. You are walking in his footsteps. But if you hear that news, that God is God over the whole world, and although he's a destroying God, his first choice is to rescue you know, I love the fact that the very first story in Joshua is not a destruction story, it's a salvation story. It's God saying, look, that's my choice. I got a whole group of wicked people, but what I really want to do with them is save them. I want to rescue them. And if like Rahab, you're looking at your life, if like Katie, whenever you look at your life and it's filled with darkness and destruction, it's filled with loneliness or emptiness or a lack of purpose, it's filled with broken relationships, it's filled with disobedience, whatever might be there and you say, I want to be rescued out of this by God, then you're Rahab. If you say, look, maybe he'll rescue me. If he's a rescuing God and he doesn't favor one people group over another, why can't he rescue me? Well, then you're in the role of Rahab. And whether your sins are known by everybody like hers were or not known by anybody but God like the kings were, whether your sin is sexual immorality or lying or cheating, whatever it may be, if you choose to turn to this God and say, is there a chance that you would rescue me? Then you're walking in the role of Rahab. So how does the story turn out? If you're walking in the footsteps of the king, how does the king's story end? Well, he is utterly destroyed. He's physically killed. No one remembers him. We don't know his name. He fades from the annals of history. He basically ceases to exist. We don't know his name. We don't know anything about him. He's utterly destroyed. And worse than that, he is currently eternally separated from God, unable to experience the joy and the peace of eternal life with God. That's his future. It's also the future of any who choose his path to fight against, to resist, 
to refuse to believe that this God is a destroying and rescuing God puts you on his path, which is the path of destruction. What about Rahab? How does her story end? Well, amazingly, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, we find her name again. This is in the genealogy of Jesus. When we're told who are Jesus' ancestors, we find out there was a man named Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. That's this woman. This formerly husbandless prostitute is accepted into God's family, given a a husband, and able to have a child, a man named Boaz, who turns out to be a wonderful, amazing person. We hear about his story in the book of Ruth. That's this Rahab, who God welcomes into her family. She, Boaz, becomes the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. This Rahab becomes King David's great-great-grandmother. More importantly than that, she becomes an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. She's in his lineage. More importantly than that, James tells us that this Rahab, this prostitute, this woman who was living a life of of darkness, who was an outcast from her family, who was familiar with lying, this Rahab becomes a model of faith. James says, in this same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? More important than even that, Hebrews 11 tells us that this same Rahab, who is a model of faith, is today in heaven among the great cloud of witnesses cheering us on telling us your life can be different turn to this rescuing saving god look what he did for me she was on a road to destruction no meaningful relationships in her life death all around her an outcast familiar with lying and with deceiving and she became a whole person filled with peace and joy and eternal life And if you turn to this rescuing God, that's how your story will end too. If you play the character of the king, you will experience what the king got, which is destruction. If you play the role of Rahab, if you follow in her footsteps, now notice, God doesn't ask Rahab to stop being a prostitute. God doesn't tell Rahab she's got to fight against her own people. All he says is, look, put a scarlet cord out your window which is a symbol that you want me to come rescue you. Leave the rest up to me. Now she stops being a prostitute. She ends up married. She becomes a beautiful mother, a wonderful woman. But none of that has anything to do with walking in her footsteps at the beginning. It's simply hearing that God is a rescuing God. And the question is, do you want to be rescued by God? That's the question. If you answer no, you're the king. If you answer yes, you're Rahab question is, well, how, how do you answer yes? I got really, really great news for you. If you want to answer yes, you already have. That's all there is. You've heard the news that you are separated from God because of your disobedience and sin. That sin deserves death. God who sent his son Jesus 
crucifying him on a cross, killing him because of sin, raise that Jesus from the dead. This God who is God over the whole world is your God and my God is a destroying but also a rescuing God. And if you say to that God, I want you to rescue me, then you're Rahab. 